This conference is called The Church Renewed, and I'm not sure whether it oughtn't to have a question mark after it. But in fact, the title gives rise to several questions in my mind. The first of these is whether we will ever renew the church if we concern ourselves with renewing the church. I personally hold that the church will be renewed if and when she gets on with her job, which has to do with renewing the face of the earth. And that when the church starts worrying too much about herself and her structures, it's a sign that her real job is not being done. Of course, it may be simply the case that her job is not being done, and it may be that the reason for this is that things are wrong with her internally that should be put right. But when the church is concerned for her own health, it's important to know whether she is suffering from some organic disease or merely from hypochondria brought on by having nothing to do. And I believe that it's a bit of both. In the first place, the church has things are organically wrong with her, and that's why she's not up and about and doing her job. But then also, her staying in bed has made her altogether too preoccupied with her state of health. Thus, Father Herbert McCabe of the English Dominicans, at the beginning of his keynote address to the Conference on Church Renewal, held, as we've heard, in Belfast last weekend. The conference was sponsored by the Platform Group, an admirably disorganised but highly efficient group of people who are too busy caring about the present state of things in their city and province and country to be able to afford the time to think about their own affairs. Indeed, very much an example to us all and to the church itself in Father McCabe's terms. Still, as will be all too clear before the end of this programme, even to the least institutionally-minded people, the problem of institution, the problem of structures, is not disposed of all that easily. However, last weekend's conference had at the back of its collective mind the question of the possibility and desirability of setting up in Ireland something on the lines of the Catholic renewal movement in England and Wales. But from the start, the danger of even beginning to think in these terms was recognised not least by Father McCabe. I'm sure you'll be relieved to hear that I don't propose as an Englishman to pontificate about the present situation here and draw lessons from it. I merely hope that actual involvement in this situation will have sharpened the theological awareness of some of the people here, that when people like me go off into misty liberal generalities, there'll be other people who will remind us of the realities of the world in which grace is offered to us, remind us of the shape under which we are likely to meet Christ in Belfast. I was deeply depressed myself by a passage in Renew, the bulletin of the Catholic Renewal Movement in England last June, about Northern Ireland. There was the ritual complaint about segregated schools. I say ritual complaint not because I'm in favour of segregated schools, but because the complaint is mere gesture. Of course, we're all against segregated schools, but, you know, just what are your plans for having nuns teaching in Insandy Row? Aren't you in any case trying to deal with a peculiarly intractable symptom when you might have more luck with the disease itself? Well, no doubt we shall be discussing all that, and no doubt I have a lot to learn about it. It didn't seem to me that the Bulletin of the Catholic Renewal Movement was aware that there might be something to learn. For example, it, it went on to say, um, 
It might also be no bad thing if Catholic extremists in Ulster were told plainly by their clergy, underlined, that it was wrong to seek to overthrow the Constitution. Well, what Constitution to start with? I worked it out later that um, extremists in Ulster must be some men in Donegal trying to overthrow the Constitution of the Irish Republic. Anyway, it was both clericalist and depressing and sounded like an editorial in The Guardian. Father McCabe's characteristically pungent warning uh, did not, however, invalidate the generally recognised need for considering the problem of renewal in the Church since Vatican II. And let me say at once that uh, by the Church here was meant the Roman Catholic Church, to which almost all the participants in the conference belong. Uh, They were almost all Irish Catholics. The lecturers were all outsiders, as it were, three of them English Catholics and one an Irish Protestant. I need hardly say that uh, the word outsider was not used with any sense of alienation, least of all in the case of Anthony Spencer, the distinguished English Catholic sociologist now working in Queen's University, Belfast. He was one of the founders of the Catholic Renewal Movement in England and Wales, and his lecture on the Catholic Renewal Movement Past and Future was listened to, as one might imagine, with particular interest. He began with a word on recent Catholic history. The European Renaissance is a convenient starting point. It represented a quickening of the pace of change in both the culture and social structure of Western Europe. These changes gave rise, as changes usually do, to problems of adaptation. In the political, economic and technological field, a great deal of successful adaptation took place, but in the religious field there was strong resistance to adaptation. The leaders of those social forces inside the church opposed to adaptation, refused to heed the prophets and creative innovators of the 15th and 16th centuries. They used their power to expel those who did not cut themselves off, or to destroy them, or silence them. As a result, the adaptation to the Renaissance took place largely outside the Roman Catholic Church, in the churches that emerged during the Reformation. Catholicism did undergo adaptation in the Counter-Reformation, but it was an adaptation to the creation of the new churches, seen as an external threat, not an adaptation to the deep-seated cultural changes that evoked these new churches in default of adaptations within the universal church. Catholic scholars produced translations of the Bible in reaction to the translations produced by Anglicans, Lutherans and Calvinists, but the Catholic Church did not adopt a vernacular liturgy. That had to wait until the 1960s, some 700 years or more after the emergence of the main vernacular languages in Europe. The Catholic Church emerged from the Council of Trent, still resisting basic adaptations to the European Renaissance. There followed more fundamental changes in the culture and social structure that presented additional problems of adaptation. The rise of merchant capitalism, the Industrial Revolution, industrial capitalism, the Enlightenment and the French Revolution, socialism, nationalism, imperialism, the scientific revolution, communism, finance capitalism, decolonization, internationalism, supranationalism, and many others one could name. 
Very slowly, the church, in the centuries that followed Trent, did make adaptations. But the pace of change was so slow that the cultural lag that provoked the Reformation became greater and greater. The results were very serious for the church. Gradually, the church lost its pastoral control over the people in countries which had remained loyal at the Reformation. It lost most of the intellectuals and most of the industrial urban working classes. Its increasing marginality was obscured by a number of factors. The success of the missionary movement in most of Africa, Asia and Oceania under Western colonial rule. The fossilization of Catholic peasant cultures. The alliance between church and state in some countries and the alliance between Catholicism and nationalism in others. It was obscured too by weaknesses in the church's information system. Vatican I induced a state of mind, both in Rome and throughout the Catholic world, that was conducive to centralization and to the abdication of responsibility and initiative in the local church, where the consequences of cultural lag were actually felt. More and more, the universal church relied on its information system to ensure that the center was aware of the problems encountered on the periphery, more and more, the combination of hierarchic control and bureaucracy ensured that relevant information seldom reached the centre and was misunderstood or ignored when it did. And Dr Spencer was, of course, speaking not as a theologian but as a sociologist and was looking at various ecclesiastical phenomena with a sociologist's eye. He spoke, for instance, of what he called the social stratification of the church, which, as he said over the centuries, approached the caste type of classification. Uh, the bishops forming one caste, the highest caste, the clergy and religious representing a group of intermediate classes, with, uh, at the bottom, the lay caste, subdivided, he suggested, into two subcastes, lay men and lay women. And, as he said, the lay women were the lowest subcaste of all. Prior to Vatican II, the caste system of Catholicism was maintained by a number of values, beliefs and norms, institutions and processes. First, a series of doctrines provided ideological legitimation. These caste relationships were recognised within the Church as right. Second, a whole series of cultural norms subtly but effectively ensured the preservation of clerical domination of lay activities and lay organisations. Third, through early selection, segregated education and training, and through social and geographical isolation during training, the distinctiveness of the professional castes was stressed to their own members. Fourth, a number, another group of cultural norms maintained social distance between the main castes and the sub-castes. This complex of beliefs, values, norms, institutions and processes was under pressure in one sense before Vatican II. The norms of the hierarchic structure implied numbers of positions in the structure which had to be filled by the professional castes. But in the decades before Vatican II, the level of recruitment was falling below that prescribed. There was, in many countries, Ireland and Netherlands were major exceptions, a shortage of vocations. However, as the sessions of Vatican II came and went, new sources of strain emerged. The communications explosion began to affect important sections of clergy, religious and laity. They communicated with each other more often, more freely, 
with greater frankness over a wider range of issues than for many centuries. As they were doing this, some doctrinal developments of great importance began to percolate out of the Council and into general circulation. Preeminent among these were the doctrines of the Church as the people of God and of the universal priesthood of all believers, and the doctrinal attitudes expressed in the Constitution on the Church in the modern world. As a result of these influences, there occurred here and there something like an emancipation of the proletariat. Groups of laity, varying greatly in size, experienced, often for the first time, a sense of freedom, of autonomy and responsibility, a willingness to make decisions reflecting those judgments, and to act upon them. Such groups have in many cases been sustained by clergy and religious, and have in turn sustained the professionals in conflicts with bishops and superiors. These emergent groups have been willing to enter into conflict with the formal ecclesiastical leadership, and often consciously use low-level conflict as a means of obtaining group objectives. These conflicts have multiplied and deepened since the end of the Council as a result of the slowness in implementing its conclusions. The new attitudes of willingness to face conflict and to use it as a means of attaining desired ends has led to the formation of something like political parties in the Church. This development has been accelerated by the leadership's inability to recognize the central role dilemma of Pope and Bishop in the new post-conciliar situation. In the pre-conciliar days, the expressive leader, the symbol of group loyalty and solidarity, could, without damage to his expressive functions, be the instrumental leader, the group decision-maker. As there was no question of real adaptation to change, few, if any, of his decisions exposed him to odium. But in the new situation, a wide range of potential decisions does expose the decision-maker to odium. Whatever he decides will be resented by one section or another, and if he decides to do nothing, that too will be resented. Not recognizing this dilemma, Pope and Bishop have insisted on preserving and exercising their group-making, their decision-making functions, thus exposing themselves to bitter opposition from within the group, whose unifying principle they have traditionally been. Again, let us remember that Dr. Spencer is speaking as a sociologist concerned with sociological problems of a type not by any means confined to the Church. But the Church has to face such problems and cannot hope to escape from the tensions uh, between institution and community. At the Belfast Conference, another lecturer from England, Dutch-born Theo Westo, spoke on authority and structures in the Church. He stressed the primacy of interpersonal relationships and went on. I see perhaps somewhat vaguely two main channels in which the personal relationships between man and man can be organized as they perforce have to be. The most common is the channel which passes from the rather free and limited pattern of small group activity which I call the structure to the stage where the structure develops an organization and status of its own which I call the institution, and lastly, to the stage where the institution develops an impersonal power and authority of its own, and so becomes an establishment. 
These are not definitions in the sense of complete accuracy and coverage, but only definitions which enable us to understand each other if we care to use them in roughly the same sense. The purpose of a definition is not absolute accuracy, but quite simply to make it possible to communicate with each other. The second channel of personal relationships is the movement. And the difference between the two channels is rather important. A movement is not based on the preservation of a certain stability of structures, as the institution is, but on a cause for which we have to work. The institution has no such cause as its primary concern, but a movement stands or falls with it. The institution needs an effective organization which perpetuates itself in a hierarchical distribution of offices. The movement uses casual structures, but can only achieve continuity through the personal adhesion of the members to the cause. This personal adhesion is the sole measure for judging the effectiveness and validity of the movement. Now this leads to another distinction. The institution always develops an impersonal life of its own. It then fails to identify with the people with whom it deals. It develops a sense of power and authority in the sense of control and command and sanctions. It is frequently personified, thus showing that this impersonal institution tends to assume personal values of its own which it does not possess. This in turn leads to a constant and perverse ambiguity since the officials tend to submerge their true personality in the office they exercise, claim superior status, power and authority because of the institution they represent and then proceed to embellish the institution with all kinds of qualities in its own right, regardless of whether the officials managing the institution have ever shown such qualities personally. We get that perverse kind of language which makes people in authority so often say that it is not through any of my own merits that I am such an exalted person and makes politicians claim that they are only there to serve the public, even if they ignore the wishes of the public and pursue their own mad ambitions. It is not for nothing that only institutions know the distinction between superior and inferior. It is also not for nothing that no institution ever apologizes or makes amends. The movement has none of these things. The only authority it has lies in the validity and credibility of its cause. If it fails to persuade, it has no laws, no sanctions, no forces of law and order to enforce consent. This authority finds its main strength in the leader and in leadership. The authority of the leader of a movement is therefore purely personal, not institutional. 
This means that the leader has to show personal integrity, personal credibility, and personal commitment to the cause. He has his helpers, but they are not officials. There is no way of simplifying adhesion to the cause in the people. The adhesion may vary from total commitment to the cause to mere vague sympathizing with the cause. All this shows that a movement can only thrive on belief in a cause, whilst an institution does not rest on any belief or can only do so if this belief has first been depersonalized and institutionalized by being rationalized and sacralized in an orthodox formula to which one has to subscribe. For without this, such a belief would not be capable of any form of legal enactment or institutional sanction. A good example of all this can be found in the history of Marxism. That Marx was genuinely concerned with mankind, no serious scholar doubts any longer. With his Jewish background, he would have this sense of the people of mankind. But gradually the movement turned into a permanent structure and became a tightly formulated doctrine for a tightly organized political party and so ended up as a dictatorial establishment in Russia. Now did the same thing perhaps happen to us? The church, says Theo Westo, has become not only an institution but an establishment. How, he asks, did we get into this situation? The first and rather fundamental point where we went wrong, I would suggest, was right at the beginning. The Gentiles who formed the bulk of the new Christians had no understanding of the Old Testament. The early writings, the Epistle of Barnabas, the letter to the Corinthians of St. Clement, the Didache, and most others, show no understanding whatever of Scripture as a whole in their way of quoting these Scriptures. The Gentiles learned all about the struggle between Jesus and the Jewish establishment, knew nothing about the anti-institutional tendency contained in the rejection of monarchy and temple, and so failed to make the necessary distinction between Jesus' struggle against the institutionalization and sacralization of law and temple priesthood, and Jesus' personal love of the Jews as such, and so they generalized it all as a struggle between Jesus and the bad Jews at large. And so they throw the baby out with the bathwater. They were left without any working philosophy of man, without any sense of Christian structures, without any true theology. The result of all this was obviously that Christians moved in a theological and liturgical vacuum. So they introduced Roman law, Roman political power, Roman curias, Roman sacralization of priesthood and virginity, and fled for their theology to Greek, mainly Neoplatonic philosophy. The Church, as an institution, was not born on Whit Sunday.
It was born when the peace broke out with Constantine, and the church became a state and the bishop of Rome became a monarch. The result of all this was a major split between a sacralized clergy, backed by a purely institutional theology of the sacraments, and a laity reduced to the state of subjects. The term occurs in the documents. In between, there arose the religious section of monarchism, which tried to supply what had gone west in the sacralization of the clergy, but again at the expense of the laity's already weak attitude towards Christian perfection. As an institution, the Church depersonalized the people of God, but as a movement, it can still save Christianity. One cannot personalize people en masse, but only in groups small enough for each person to count as a person and to be known as a person. To encourage the Eucharist in such small groups where it becomes a personal and communal meaningful act, to soft-pedal canonical requirements so that tender plants, plants may grow, to allow the pastor to evoke a free personal response to Christ in these little Christians instead of bothering them with canon law, that is how I see the main task of pastoral care. Out of such live but humble beginnings, we are more likely to develop the kind of supple structures we need and which will not overpower the personal and prophetic commitment of Christians again. Out of these little local structures will come the new leadership, and with this new leadership the new authority. Such leaders, who are already aware that they are only there because they have been thrown up by the movement of the Christian people, and therefore know that their authority relies on the consent and election of the community, on personal commitment to the cause of Christ, on example and persuasion, will then find the kind of institutional bonds that may be required to preserve and strengthen that unity of which the indwelling spirit of Christ, and not the papacy or canon law, is the sole guarantee these institutional bonds will be modest and will not require any sacralization, let alone any caste distinction. There will be no lording it over others against which St. Peter warned his flock. In the end, we shall find that a vast amount of institutionalism can and will gradually fade out without any loss to the life of Christ and his cause in this world. At the top, the leadership will also develop out of the community, will remain bound to the election and consent of the community, and thus the prophetic vision can come to life once more to prevent these institutional structures from throttling the movement again. And then, at long last, Christians will be free again with all the freedom of the Spirit, a freedom without which love cannot operate, 
a freedom which will then make the millions of Christians become that prophetic movement which God set off at creation, which Jesus fulfilled in his death and resurrection, and which the followers of Jesus will continue until the community of mankind has indeed become a community of love, peace and justice. The society of fear, which man has built so far, can only be transformed by that love which casts out fear, as St. John said a long time ago. Theo Westor's vision of the church as movement received some rather striking sociological support from Anthony Spencer in his recommendation of the organic, or as he calls it, systemic type of organisation as most suitable for a movement of renewal. In a systemic organisation, the task of leadership is threefold. It is first to monitor the changing environment and assess the implications of change for the goals of the organisation. It is second to redefine the organisation's goals in terms that are relevant in the changing situation. And third, to interpret internal organisational change to the members as the necessary consequence of redefined goals. The systemic type of organisation relies on the commitment of the members to, the, to its goals and on their skill and competence. The leadership does not tell the membership what to do. Each works out for himself what to do, consulting others as seems necessary. He or she is able to make decisions and take actions because of the clarity of his understanding of the goals. An important advantage of this type of organisation is that it is very difficult to destroy. A highly centralised bureaucratic organisation becomes quite ineffective if its leadership is destroyed by a hostile institution. A movement organised on the systemic principle continues to function independently of its leadership. If one leadership is destroyed, another will in the course of time emerge. If one cell collapses, the others are little affected. But now let us return to the language of theology. Father Herbert McCabe reminded the conference that the ultimate and unique source of renewal is to be found in the Holy Trinity. It is in the exchange of love between father and son, he said, that we are caught up. This exchange of love, what we call the Holy Spirit, is what men are to live by. They're no longer creatures merely, but part of the divine life. John makes Jesus pray, May they all be one, Father, may they be one in us, as you are in me and I am in you, that they may be one as we are one, with me in them and you in me. May they be so completely one that the world will realize that it was you who sent me and that I loved them as you loved me. This is the new thing that Jesus has brought about amongst men, that the Godhead is no longer something distant, a top person in control of things. God is love, an exchange of love in which we share. If we are to find God at all, it will only be in the Holy Spirit, in the exchange of love between men, in a new kind of equality, a new kind of solidarity between men. Now, 
The church is the sacrament of this new solidarity, this new equality. The sacraments that constitute the church are indeed mysteries of equality, of human solidarity. And the greatest achievement of Vatican II has been to start the process of letting the sacraments appear for what they are, signs of the Spirit, signs of solidarity in divine equality. We have to ask, though, whether the Church, in particular the Roman Catholic Church, is in fact, as a whole, an effective sign of the Spirit. Is it a sign of love? Is it a source of the Spirit that will renew the face of the earth? Is it a source of unity amongst us or of division? These, I take it, will be some of the questions we shall have to be asking ourselves. If the Church, the sign of renewal, herself needs to be renewed, in what ways and how? We shall need especially to be on our guard against an easy, optimistic approach to human unity. We speak not of an easy consensus, but of unity in love, unity in the Holy Spirit. And this is something that comes to us only through our sharing into death and resurrection. It is in fact by struggle, and ultimately by failure, that we pour forth the spirit of divine unity into the world, the spirit of reconciliation. A timely thought for Holy Week, incidentally. It's a long way from the false dawn of Palm Sunday to the ultimate renewal of Easter. Father McCabe spoke of Christ's relationship with his disciples, that paradigm of all loving relationships, as a matter of genuine acceptance of people. I say genuinely because it wasn't the superficial friendliness that masquerades as acceptance. Jesus was clearly a formidable person capable of anger and scathing criticism and, indeed, of physical violence. He had no patience at all with the systems we build up to exploit each other, to justify ourselves, to keep people at bay. But in his presence, his friends felt accepted and therefore liberated. Now, this is true to some extent of all friendships. We like to be with our friends, with those who love us. We like to be in their bodily presence precisely because of the sense of liberation and acceptance that it brings. But with Jesus, it obviously went a great deal deeper. They had a sense of liberation which they could only call the forgiveness of sin. What they discovered in the presence of Jesus was not a new way of justifying themselves, but the kind of acceptance which made them secure enough to admit the truth about themselves, the actual facts. Facts which are, the facts are always the most revolutionary thing there is. And Jesus had the kind of clarity and honesty which brought out the worst in them, brought it out and accepted them all the same. This made them able to throw away the shifts and evasions and excuses and really see themselves as they were. This was forgiveness, this was liberation. It's in this way that the truth sets you free. It's when you're liberated that you can see the truth. This was the foundation of a new sort of relationship between the disciples themselves. They no longer needed to hide from each other. They were able to love each other. The possibility of a new kind of community was created. And at this point, the effect of the presence of Jesus begins to be political. Indeed, 
begins to be a political threat. St. John is, of all the evangelists, the one most plainly aware of the, these political implications. He's aware, that's to say, of the hatred of this world. When, when John speaks of the world in this way, it's clear that the word is a political term. He's not talking about the world of nature or material things. He's not using the world in any philosophical or metaphysical sense. He means society, the Roman colonial society on the one hand and the Jewish church on the other. In particular, he means the ruling class and all those who consciously or unconsciously are agents of the ruling class. Not, of course, because the members of the ruling class are particularly wicked people, but because their role as ruling class compels them to distrust and destroy the kingdom. A rich man, Jesus says flatly, cannot get into the kingdom. He has as much chance as a camel has of getting through a needle's eye. The attempt by Jesus to set up a commune of love, well, you can hardly call it an attempt, it was the natural result of his presence, of what we call his body. This attempt, of course, presented a threat to the established structures. Nobody supposes that the established structures in the time of Jesus, or for that matter in our time, are wholly and absolutely bad. They do make it possible to some extent for men to live together, even in a limited sort of way to love together. But they do this at the cost of an ultimate betrayal of men. They depend in the end on exploitation, they depend on fear and domination and the passion for acquisition. They depend on the desperate need we have for alternatives when we cannot find love. This is the foundation of our society as it was the foundation of the Roman colonial society in Palestine. Similarly, the religion, the Jewish religion, in the form that Jesus encountered it in Palestine, depended in the end on the righteous judging God, on the need of man for self-justification, on the works of the law. All this was subverted by the kind of community of love that Jesus was establishing or that was forming itself around him. This community could not but attract the hostility of the established order. This was the central contradiction in the mission of Jesus and one that he very quickly saw. The whole point of the life that he came to bring, to bring more abundantly, was that it was a life of openness, a life in which barriers and defences are down, in which you simply put yourself, your real self, at the disposal of others, in which, therefore, you are completely vulnerable. Now, as I've said on not so many occasions, the great contradiction in the mission of Jesus can be expressed in these two propositions. If you do not love, you will not be alive, not really alive. You'll be taking refuge from life behind some self-made image. If you do not love, you will not come alive. On the other hand, if you do love, you will be killed. If you do love, I mean love really effectively, the world will hate you and ultimately destroy you. Father Herbert McCabe. The only Irish lecturer to the Belfast Conference was the Presbyterian historian and liturgist Professor John Barclay, who was invited to present a Protestant point of view on church renewal. Speaking to me after his lecture, he stressed the importance of the relationship between worship and service. 
Yes, I think that this is an absolutely vital problem because so many people are turned around and they want to be activists. They don't realise that it is only by man recognising that Jesus Christ has a message for the world. It is worship which means that man sees himself with all his weakness. He sees what is far more important, that God is a good God, and he hears this call and uh, responds to it. And in this way, service becomes unselfish service instead of benevolence. It becomes generous. It becomes service with no axe to grind for self. And I think that it is absolutely vital if we're going to have renewal of the world and renew the church's renewal within the world to serve the world that the link between worship and service must be seen. Now, you have some comments to make on the renewal of worship itself. Well, the only comment I would make is that this is a thing which I feel that certain people have failed to understand. For example, I do not see how, say, a church hymnary can exist for 30 years without need of revision or a liturgical service book last for 100 years without revision because worship and life have to be related to each other. If I may use an illustration, I think that not only in preaching, but in prayers, by using, say, the like of the newspaper each week, picking out of it the things for which we must thank God, and there are many, such as advances in medical science, uh, the production of peace, the production of understanding between nations, it also lists many things for which we ought to pray within our own community. And if, say, in the new order of the Mass, where you have this uh, opportunity for petition for the needs of the Church, the need of mankind, the salvation of the world, for the local community... Uh, and the people respond, Lord graciously, hear us, that if the like of the themes which arise in the daily press were used uh, as the basis and the background for our intercessions of the prayer of the faithful, it would help to keep worship and daily life and service closely linked. Renewal in the Irish context was, of course, discussed formally and informally all through the conference, and especially at a symposium led by a panel of five, which uh, took place under the chairmanship of Father Terence O'Keefe. I invited the panel to argue the case again for the radio audience, and the discussion was led off by Paddy McAvoy of Queen's University. Well, I think perhaps that we're asking for the formation of a group to do in the community something that we're not prepared to do within ourselves. I think the first prerequisite for any sort of renewal movement 
is a community, and that's an important word, a community of people renewed in themselves. Uh, and th this cannot be done alone, in isolation. We have found it difficult to achieve within the churches, many of us. Uh, I think it must be done in each, other's in each other's company. And by each other, I mean people who find themselves in the same theological position, be they Catholic, Protestant, or whatever uh, label you like to put on them. So you think that this uh, call to renewal, this need for renewal, uh, transcends the different traditions? Most certainly, yes. This is fundamental to it. And you think that can be done up here? Well, it's our only hope. <laughs> uh, it, it's going to be a terribly long job. It's going to demand a supreme act of faith, an act of commitment from each one of us. And while we hang back waiting for leadership from everybody else, we'll get nowhere. And this is what's happening. Everybody's waiting for everybody else to take the lead. Now, among students, has there been any, any signs that this sort of thing is possible already? About the university, I think there is an air of depression. Because of the colossal uh, um, community come back on the students after their political activity of two years ago, the students have uh, fallen, I think, on, on hard days, uh, have, been, have become depressed about the situation. And what we see in the university, in fact, is a mushrooming of right-wing groups. Uh, it's a depressing thing, but I don't think we must look to the university or to any party for an answer to this. The answer lies, I'm convinced, within, within the Christian within the individual Christian, the individuals coming together as Christians to form Christian communities, perhaps Christian communes in the areas of strife. But certainly fundamental to this is that there be no barriers between them, that the divisions between the, the different religions, which are, after all, basically divisions of, of uh, tradition, uh, be seen as secondary and as unimportant as compared with their commitment to Christ. Sister Eileen Sweeney uh, is of the Congregation of the... Holy Child. Well, I would like in this context really to make two points, and the first to put it in the historical context that Theo West was thinking about. For instance, when he made the point that the Church had in fact lagged 700 years behind the vernacular situation, where we're only now using the vernacular in the liturgy, whereas vernacular languages came into their own so many hundreds of years ago, well, I think that in an even deeper level, and that in our culture in the south of Ireland, we are even there's even a bigger time lag. That really the world, the, the secular world, has taken off, if you like, on its own. And I we should are... say here, by the way, that Sister Eileen is uh, well. She was up with this thing in Belfast. Uh, is normally based in Dublin. And yes. when you said the South of Ireland, you're referring to the Republic. I'm referring as to the Republic. I'm referring to the Republic as because well. Because your your accent isn't precisely of the South or of the Deep South. Well, it is Donegal. Well, I am Donegal. But well, to continue, to continue anyway, um, the idea that uh, the Church is still in the almost primitive society where it's think we're, we're thinking of ourselves as a theosophical situation in a way that there isn't the division that is necessary for both religion and the secular state to develop properly on their own and that we'd be far uh, better off to let the secular part of us develop as secular. And this doesn't mean that religion will be in any way downgraded. On the other hand, it will be given its proper position in a society. And 
then because the state, the secular state, would be able to accept the fact that religion is a social fact and therefore has to be given its own place in society. And if I could take it in one context, which is one I'm engaged in, which is that of education, that the whole question <coughs> under discussion in the Republic at the moment of community schools is one that we could think of in this context, that religious orders, when they were founded in a capitalist society, had to have private sources of income. Well, now, our society seems to be developing, it seems to be that the only just form of society will be a socialist society, and that, therefore, there will be less need to rely on these private resources, and that the religious institutes will have to come in their public work, which is a necessary social part of their, of their work, something that's necessary for the state, that this will be, if you like, a part, a recognised part by the state and will therefore be subsidised by the state. And therefore, the old idea of religious orders having to have this private source of income with the defects, A, that they were too much tied up in money, and B, that they did not really recruit from the poor the people who, whom they really were servicing. I think that's the first point I would like to make. And the second one, a rather different one, that we hear a lot from theologians like Karl Rahner about us being an, an elite, small little group, cellular group in a, you know, the diaspora in <coughs> a pagan society. Well, I think here that we are losing sight of the, the most important thing that Christianity, one of the most important things Christianity is saying to us, that we're to preach the gospel to all men and not allow ourselves to become the small elite society. And this is a problem. We've got to find out what are the ways in which we can make, form a society where men can be really and truly Christian. Mrs. Olive Scott, as a laywoman living in Belfast, how do you feel about this whole situation? It's, it's been an interesting conference, both in its content and in its implications. Uh, in some ways, a revolutionary conference uh, for Irish Catholics. Uh, perhaps here I would sound a note of caution. So far, the idea, this renewal movement, has been based on, the Engli on English society and English structures. I think it's necessary before a similar movement, and God knows it's needed here, is applied in Ireland, that a close study be made of the difference between the two communities. Irish Catholicism differs as much from English Catholicism as German Catholicism with its Lutheran Reformation background differs from Italian Catholicism. And these differences are important. What succeeds and is necessary and good uh, and understandable in one community uh, doesn't always transplant readily uh, in, in terms of another community. Uh, I think, too, we have to make use of those things which are valuable in Irish society. By and large, though, any society can be accused of snob values. This is universal, a universal failing of mankind. Irish society is not stratified in the way that English society is. And therefore, such a movement here should be, I think, more of the people and less of the small uh, elite group um, wanting to dis decimate its influence throughout society. I think we should make use of the fact that, by and large, uh, politics and religion do not coincide in Ireland, and uh, one hopes they never will, that uh, the development of political concepts have not been tied in 
uh, as so often they're accused of being, especially in the context of the North, with Catholicism. This is a good thing, and uh, 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 reference has already been made to it, and I, I think this is the way uh, things should continue to develop. A movement for renewal among the laity, in my opinion, should take account of such almost, uh, to an Englishman, incredible manifestations of popular devotion as Crowpatrick. Uh, I challenge anyone to take an Englishman up Crowpatrick <coughs> and try and make him understand it. Well, as one Irishman who, I must confess, has never been to Crowpatrick, I'll, I'll take your remarks to heart. Now, uh, James Daly lectures in scholastic philosophy in uh, Queen's University. Uh, there has been this... Uh, Stress on avoiding elitism, on making the making any movement of Catholic renewal specifically Irish. What are your general feelings? <clears throat> well, um, I would have been far more interested in the question of uh, specifically Catholic renewal, renewal inside the Catholic Church, a couple of years ago at the time, Save Humanae Vitae. But of course, our political troubles took a very um, crucial change just then too and uh, I find that I'm very much in sympathy with Father Herbert McCabe who says that uh, our concern should not be with the uh, structures in the church but with the uh, with the world and with our part as Christians in the world. And what the, uh, the church's job is in the world. What the church's job is in the world and in, that in me means our immediate political situation. Um, I agree, however, that uh, the kind of renewal which uh, Father McCabe and Father uh, and Theo Westo were talking about, a renewal of uh, a spirit, is uh, is very necessary. Um, and the kind of thing which uh, Mr. Spencer was talking about, which seems to be more the, uh, it seems to have more emphasis on freedom, maturity, and responsibility, and uh, <clears throat> sort of uh, an emphasis on. Uh, Securing and uh, obtaining uh, civil rights and natural justice inside the structures of the church is very important. Um, undoubtedly, in perhaps uh, even more so in Northern Ireland, where the stratification, where the polarisation of society um, has made for far more of a ghetto mentality, there is uh, uh, an almost slavish, I would even say, um, craving for discipline and authority, which is uh, destructive of, of human dignity and um, is not, I think, compatible with Christianity, as I think that uh, Father McCabe pointed out last night. But uh, on the other hand, um, I think that when we are renewing our, ourselves in, inside the church, now this is a sort of cantankerous political point, and I know that it will... Uh, many people... Some people may be shocked. I think we should remember that what we do takes place in a political context and should not be part of a sort of... the kind of gesture required, which is part of unionist mystification, uh, which lays the various troubles at the doors of Catholics and talks about um, fears of Rome and so on. If a change is worth um, bringing about, as it has been pointed out in the present controversy in the Republic over the question of the secular state, it's worth bringing about for its own sake and not for the sake of appeasement of unionists, which, by the way, will not be obtained by those means. The chairman of the symposium was another philosopher, uh, Father Terence O'Keefe, who lectures 
in the new University of Ulster. Uh, a summing up word? Well, I think I'd like to take from the uh, symposium and from the whole conference perhaps, you know, those two points. One, the point that Herbert McCabe made that, you know, we mustn't be uh, looking into the church all the time, obsessed with the internal workings of the structure. The church is the servant of the world. So it's already an outward looking thing. You look at what the church does in society and if necessary, you criticize and change what it does in society. And also, I think the uh, point that Theo Westo made that, you know, the, the comparison between church as institution and eventually as establishment, and on the other hand, the church as movement, because I think that part of our problem, both, uh, and here I, I talk first of all as a cleric, also as, uh, you know, on behalf of a number of teachers and things like that, um, our problem is credibility. Theo Westo t- spoke about the. Uh, that in a movement your credibility was based on your belief in the cause. Now it seems to me that what's being exposed today is our lack of credibility in the structures of the church and uh, I would instance, for example, uh, the fact that many uh, teachers of religion now, having left the uh, teaching by rote of the catechism, suddenly find themselves exposed in teaching the new catechetics because their belief is not up to it. So I think those two points, and also the point that a renewal is necessary to, in order to sweep away this idea of a monolithic church, a monolithic church which speaks and which very often whose voice is the clericalist caste voice. I think this is the sort of thing we've suffered from in the north of Ireland. It's the sort of thing which gives a justifiable um, support to the uh, unionist Protestant fears of home rule being Rome rule. I think that sort of notion must be smashed once and for all in the north of Ireland. I think a Catholic renewal movement is a sort of movement which must uh, tackle this task. Father O'Keefe, Patrick McAvoy, Sister Eileen, Mrs Olive Scott, James Daly, thank you very much. Good evening.